Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT. Because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises. From the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer. Which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. Hello and welcome to Redbox, the politics podcast from The Times and our Snap General Election Announcement Special. I'm Lucy Fisher, Senior Political Correspondent, and joining me today are Sam Coates, Deputy Political Editor, and Henry Zeffman, Political Correspondent. Before we begin on this rather extraordinary day, a reminder to subscribe to the podcast on your Android device or on iTunes. And if you don't yet receive the morning email briefing, there's no better time than now to sign up at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. So this morning, Theresa May uh, announced a snap election is going to take place on June the 8th. Jeremy Corbyn has thrown his backing behind uh, this move, so it looks like it's on. Sam, you were there in Downing Street this morning uh, when this announcement took place. What's your take? Well, we have been told time and time and time again, ever since Theresa May entered uh, entered Downing Street uh, back last summer, that this day would never come. Uh, Even though there was an absolute logic for holding an election now, after Article 50 had been triggered, before the Europeans have really got their sort of grip on their negotiating mandate together, while the uh, rest of Europe was consumed by first the French elections and then in the autumn the German elections, even though there was this sweet spot in which she could and arguably needed to hold a general election, everybody in Downing Street said no, no way. She made a promise when she came into power and she was going to stick to it. Well, this morning she's made possibly the biggest pivot of her prime ministerial career to date. It's a gamble. It's a gamble where most people think she'll probably come off a winner, Um, but you can't be certain. Just look at elections all the way around Europe, around the world over the last few months. There's no such thing as certainty and anybody who tells you that they're making a prediction, uh, beware. But nevertheless, the polls seem overwhelmingly in her favour to the detriment of the Labour Party, that many people on the Tory side think that it would be foolish to delay until 2020. Um, Think of the gamble as being like this. Um, If she goes goes to the polls now, which she's decided to do, she risks tarnishing her brand as somebody who says things and can be trusted, who sticks to her word. That is a risk. She also was opposed in this by her right flank and those Tory MPs who uh, are facing Liberal Democrats. So that is the risk of doing it 
now. However, can, there I, can I ask you, do, do you think that is a risk? I mean, I, I think people here in um, SW1 think, well, she's lied to us. Um, you know, she could be branded a hypocrite. There is that risk um, factor. Uh, risk breaking down factor um, among us journalists people who follow politics very closely day on day and have heard her repeated denials that there would be an early election do you think that the public will um, will, will will kind of think the same thing so I think that's a risk, but I don't think it's a particularly high risk. I think you have to set that against the dangers of going and delaying until 2020. So if she went in 2020, she would have stuck by her word to have an election um, uh, to, to serve out a full, uh, rem the full remainder of her term. However, I think the calculations could look um, very different and not in her favour. So Jeremy Corbyn might not be la Labour leader in 2020. Something might have gone wrong with the European negotiations between now and 2020. The economy might be just a little bit more rocky. Even even without Brexit, you could have a situation where there's a cost of living squeeze or something had gone wrong in the financial markets or in the wider economy uh, or the bond bubble had burst or uh, the Chinese financial situation had gone through the floor. Something unexpected that meant that people were suffering a bit more and blamed the Tories. So all of these things could happen with um, uh, adding up to the fact, I think, at the end of the day, there was greater risk by waiting than there was by sort of upsetting the Westminster village and risking the uh, accusation that she lied uh, to journalists like you and me. I just don't think that there are many people shedding tears for what people say mm -hmm. to you and me, Lucy. I think that's probably true, Sam. Henry, it goes against what we know of Theresa May's character, though, doesn't it? She's usually quite a cautious person, does put a high value in trust. Do we have any sense of who was behind this decision, who persuaded her to change her mind? The, the, the thing we do know about how Theresa May makes decisions is she has an extraordinarily tight-knit top team. Her closest advisers are her two uh, increasingly famous chiefs of staff, uh, that's Nick Timothy and Fiona Hill, but perhaps most crucially, her husband, Philip May, who let us remember the pair of them met at the Oxford University Conservative Association. Their journey through conservative politics has been together. And Theresa May spent last week on a walking holiday in Wales with her husband, Philip. It seems likely that she made the decision, uh, you know, with her closest advisor, Philip, then. I mean, the really interesting thing about this election, just following up on what Sam says, is, is how we define what is success for Theresa May. You know, the chances of Jeremy Corbyn becoming prime minister do appear vanishingly small. But really what Theresa May wants out of this, as well as a five-year term which, which makes the distance between a Brexit deal and a general election a bit less tight, what she really wants is to be liberated from her very small working majority, which is currently at 17. But just cast your mind back to 2015. David Cameron winning an overall majority of any size, let alone a small size, was not far off being as big a shock as the Leave vote in the referendum. That was just a recognition, as well as the pollsters making an error, that was a recognition of how much Conservative support there is in the country. Now, if Theresa May is to deliver what Tory MPs, what Tory activists are starting to hope for from the polls, we're talking, you know, quadrupling, maybe even more, that majority. Now, that's very tricky to do. And if she doesn't do that, Tory MPs might start to wonder at the end of this seven weeks of stress, well, was it really worth it? And is Theresa May really all that much of an electoral asset? That's the risk. That's interesting. I mean, this morning she's very much framed this as the Brexit election. She's called this reluctantly, she says, and only very recently made the decision uh, in light of the, of the fact she wants to have the leadership and the mandate to push through her vision uh, for the delivery of Brexit. Um, Sam, how do you think that's going to play out? And are we going to see this as a sort of rerun of the EU referendum? And will there be a Lib Dem bounce? So um, Theresa May was quite clear that this is going to be a Brexit election and she is calling it, again she was quite clear, um, to try and put troublemakers, people who are being difficult 
over Brexit back in a box. Now, standing on the steps of Drowning Street, she made quite clear that she was referring to the Liberal Democrats who want at the very least another referendum, want to get the kind of Brexit deal that she's going to negotiate. Uh, Do you want that to be put back to the British people? She referenced the SNP, who are also causing problems for her over Brexit. Understandably, Nicola Sturgeon has weaponised the issue in recent months. But I stood there, as I stood there watching her, I wondered whether there was another group of people that she was referring to, less explicitly so. And those are the people in her own party who have a predilection for causing trouble. And I'm thinking of the, as it were, the traditional right of the Conservatives, the hard Brexiteers, the uh, 30, 40, 50, 60 MPs who voted firmly for Brexit in last year's EU referendum, but not not been averse, despite appearing loyal, to put pressure on Theresa May, uh, take advantage of the fact she's only got a working majority of 1718, uh, and try and use their leverage in a situation where it isn't the biggest of overall mandates in the Houses of Parliament to get their way. Now, until now, Theresa May has always seen to side with this group of people. She left the single market, which was probably inevitable. She announced she was doing that in uh, in January, February, but has also announced that she's going to leave the customs union, which is probably less inevitable. Not every lever predicted that. And she also seems to have pledged to put immigration at the top of the list of things that she's going to um, uh, uh, get back control of when she does our deal with Brexit. These are all things that the hard Brexiteers want. But there has been a recent change of tone. There are now questions about whether or not that control of immigration might not mean that the numbers come down. There has been questions about quite what happens to immigration and other things during a transitional deal, which could have taken us past the 2020 election in which she would be have, have under the original plans been fighting. And all of those things, though not at the moment causing upset for Brexiteers, could further down the line cause big complications. Now, the, heart, the sort of traditional right of the Conservative Party did not want an election. The Unionists did not want an election. Why? Because with a small majority, they have more power. If Theresa May gets a big majority, they have less power. I think that's one of the dynamics that probably won't be talked about very much by MPs, but did play a role in determining Theresa May's decision to go to the country today. That's interesting. And Henry, what about the Lib Dems? They're positioning themselves very much as the party of the 48%, the party of Remain. Do they serve to be the big winners here uh, against Labour in uh in this decision to go to the polls? Uh, I think they're absolutely chuffed today. Uh, you know, the Lib Dems wanted this to be a Brexit election. Uh, Theresa May, on the steps of Downing Street, defined it as a Brexit election. Now, that gives Tim Farron uh, and his band of Lib Dems an opportunity to tour the country for the next seven weeks saying, this is mad, let's stop it. That's a very clear and a very coherent message, which perhaps the Labour Party, which is more awkwardly split between the hardline Remainers and its parliamentary party and some of its traditionalist voters who supported Brexit, uh, the Labour Party isn't able to strike as clear a position, certainly not under the leadership of Jeremy Corbyn. Uh, you know, look out for Lib Dem MPs uh, standing in seats that they lost in 2015 against the Conservatives, not just Labour. Uh, you know, you have the three the three former ministers who have all been knighted, who are all standing again. Sir Vince Cable in Twickenham, Sir Simon Hughes in Bermondsey in Southwark, and Sir Ed Davey in Kingston and Surbiton. Watch for that South London effect. But it's not just South London. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, it emerged that Sir Linton Crosby, who may now be running the general election campaign for Theresa May, uh, had been commissioned by the Conservative headquarters to do a poll on what would happen to the Conservatives in former Lib Dem seats uh, if there were an early general election. Now, he found that they stood to lose uh, the vast majority of those seats they gained in the West Country and in South London, seats that they gained because of the spectre of a Labour government propped up by the SNP. Remember that. But the really crucial thing is that they found that 
though the Lib Dem support had surged back in those seats, it wasn't because of Brexit. It was traditional support reasserting itself, areas where the Lib Dems have been organisationally strong for years. We've seen in Richmond and to a lesser extent in Whitney how the Lib Dems can organise by-elections. This is going to be dozens and dozens of by-elections for them and they're very excited about the opportunity. Well, of course, they're starting from a subterranean bar almost of just uh, eight MPs. Sam, what about Labour? We've heard today that Tom Blenkinsop, uh, a moderate centrist Labour MP who um, is pretty much certain to lose his seat, has decided not even to bother fighting it. He's going to step down. Do you think that's going to be a widespread phenomenon among moderates? Uh, I think it's a bit early to to predict that one, but uh, I was just looking at the list of Labour seats with small majorities, and I think quite a lot of those Labour MPs that um, who how can we put this? Maybe Jeremy Corbyn wouldn't be sorry to see the back of are in the list quite of, of MPs quite likely to be swept away if there is a Tory surge and a, and a, and a Labour decline. We could be saying goodbye to people like John Woodcock. Uh, Melanie on uh, Tom was definitely on the list of people who might have been swept away if the current poll trend was to be believed so clearly some of them might cut their losses and decide to go but this isn't going to be a phenomenon just restricted to the cons- uh, to the Labour Party Michael Gove has decided to stand again despite uh, uh, I think there was some some collie wobbles but I think he did decide to to stand again earlier today um, big question about whether George Osborne decides that six jobs is too many and goes down to five to concentrate on advising BlackRock and editing the Evening Standard in whichever order he chooses to have priority. Um, so I think we are going to be looking at big names all around. Um, we will be saying goodbye to some people. We might also be saying hello again to some old names. Um, uh, I have to say, particularly excited to hear the name uh, uh, Sir Edward Davy once more. Uh, chances of him gracing the powers of par- corridors of power uh, gives a little sp- a little thrill down the spine. Um, so I think uh, I, I, I think the, 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 but this is the consequence of having a general election two years after you had a general election. Um, In fact, most people aren't ready for a general election, so what they're going to do is default back to what they did in 2015 and try and run it again. That's why it looks like the Conservative campaign is going to be run by Linton Crosby. Now, that isn't an option for the Labour Party because the people who did elections are out in the wilderness and the left of the Labour Party are in charge and they don't exactly have a great deal of experience in successfully fighting and winning elections. And I think that's another big problem for the Labour Party as they go into this period of turmoil. I'd even be a little bit less uh, optimistic about the chances for the Liberal Democrats than Henry for this simple reason. I do think that in areas of Lib Dem heartland like the South West, there is a greater Euroscepticism. Now, there's a reason why uh, that might not be the dominant feature of this election, but there's also a reason why it might. So I'm not going to make any predictions about uh, uh, fine figures like Dan Rogerson and Nick Harvey, those people you've been missing from Parliament over the last uh, almost two years and can't believe that they could be back so soon. So um, I don't think Um, I don't think it's wise for political commentators who messed up predictions for the 2015 election, messed up predictions for the 2016 referendum, to now start laying uh, down what they think is going to happen. Because as we found from elections across Europe, there is no such thing as a certainty. I think that's absolutely right. Uh, Interestingly, Jeremy Corbyn's future is a major question uh, in this general election and many old hands in New Labour, the likes of Peter Mandelson, uh, have longed for an early election, hope that there will be, uh, in a sense, a landslide that sees uh, the Tories completely pummel Labour uh, and therefore to hasten Mr Corbyn's demise. Um, What do you both think about that? Do you think that Jeremy Corbyn uh, could hang on in that scenario? And I know we don't want to make predictions, but hypothetically... 
the question with Jeremy Corbyn has all, and, and the attempts to oust him has always been, given that he will not go voluntarily, it, it, it appears, is there a mechanism to force him out? And it is not entirely clear that even a general election would change the minds of Labour Party members who've signed up in their hundreds of thousands to put him there and keep him there, that even a general election defeat would change things. He might resign, but he might not. And if he doesn't, could he be forced out? I'm not sure that I know the answer to that and would be willing to predict it. Because in the end, if he resigns, it's not just the uh, end of, of Team Corbyn's reign in the Labour Party. It is also potentially the end of the left's grip on the Labour Party. And the left, the John McDonnells, the Diane Abbotts, the John Landsmans, do not want to cede power in the, of the Labour Party back to that wing that they have spent all their careers fighting, more than the Tories, they have spent all of their careers trying to get a foothold and then, now Jeremy Corbyn's in power, consolidate their role inside the Labour Party. I don't think a piffling general election loss will necessarily upset their plans. Henry, what do you think? It's worth noting, just on a sort of mechanical level, uh, one of the reasons why Jeremy Corbyn has been so reluctant to stand down is that the Labour left fear that they wouldn't be able to get a candidate onto the ballot for any ensuing leadership election. Uh, a candidate requires 15% of Labour MPs to sign their nomination papers. Now, if Labour does lose a lot of seats to the Conservatives or to the Lib Dems at this general election, it's worth noting that 15% is a rather smaller number of MPs. Now, a lot of the Labour MPs under threat are opponents of Jeremy Corbyn. So one possible outcome of a, of a defeat is that it's much easier for, say, John McDonnell or one of the new figures such as Rebecca Long-Bailey to get on the ballot simply because 15% of a smaller number means a smaller number of MPs required to let them stand for the leadership. Uh, one final thing is that um, the... Uh, we may not even ha formally have an election yet. MPs might not have begun the process of authorising a general election, but uh, there is already one winner. I, as we've been speaking, have just had a message from my mum. She is a member for, of all three major political parties in this country, and I'm pleased to say that as a member of the party, it is the Liberal Democrats that, has that have asked her for money first. So well done, Lib Dems. You're the ones most organised today, it would seem. Well, we'll have to check back in with you, uh, Sam, to see what Mrs Coates, uh, who, who she decides to vote for. I think lastly we just have to spare a thought for UKIP. Uh, this comes right in the middle of Paul Nuttall's planned relaunch of the party uh, when in September he was hoping to uh, unveil uh, rebranded everything, uh, logo, policies, constitution and structure. So I think uh, they will find themselves in a pretty shambolic state trying to find candidates. Uh, that's all we have time for so thank you both for joining me. You'll be pleased to know my esteemed colleague Matt Chorley will be back in the hot seat next week to keep you informed and up to date on all things General Election 2017. If you want to wake up every morning to an insider's guide on the mad seven-week campaign ahead of us, sign up to our free Redbox political briefing at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox. Email your thoughts to redbox at thetimes.co.uk, tweet at timesredbox or find us on Facebook. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes or on your Android device. From Sam, Henry and me, goodbye. Thank you for downloading. To discover more, head to thetimes.co.uk.